who's speaking this morning? Yeah. <laughs> Tara Davis. It's all yours. Thank you, sir. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Could y'all turn me down just a hair, please? Um, <laughs> might have to turn myself down. I've been trying to do that for 37 years, and I haven't figured it out yet. So, um, I, it's always an honor to be here um, in, in this house. And um, Romans 13:7. I'm going to start a little different this morning. Um, Romans 13:7 says to give honor where honor is due. And uh, I don't know why we wait until people are gone to say what we thought about them, you know? And so um, one of my personal heroes of the faith is in the house this morning. And um, just to give you a little backdrop for those who may not know, um, I've been in San Angelo for 10 years. And uh, before that, I was attending Lincoln Christian University in Lincoln, Illinois. And I um, was a jacked up, very broken child of God uh, who was just trying to figure things out. And... um, that was back when um, I, I was drinking and, and high all the time and, and just I was learning all kinds of head knowledge about God, but not heart knowledge. And uh, there were two professors who played a pivotal role in my coming back to the Lord. And uh, one of them is here this morning, and I'll probably get shot after this, but um, she was an incredible lifesaver. The Lord really used her to reach out and rescue me in the midst of my darkness. And... Um, I took several classes uh, with her, and um, I, my classes were teaching English to speakers of other languages, and honestly, I don't know what I learned, not because she wasn't an incredible instructor, but because I just went to class all the time high, and so I didn't retain anything. But what this woman of God taught me, beyond a textbook, is worth every penny of my $50,000 college debt. <laughs> And then some. Wow. (laughs) Um, She taught me to never give up on people. To always see the best in them. And to fight for them. And um, Miriam, you have been a constant source of encouragement in my life. And I still have the paper. There's a lot that I don't remember. And... um, I apparently one day for class I made a pot roast. I don't even remember making a pot roast. And I still have the paper because I did terrible on my project. And she wrote on that paper, Tara, job well done. Your succulent roast more than made up for everything else. And that meant the world to me. And so on hard days, I still pull out that pot roast paper out of my desk drawer because it came from someone that I looked up to into the faith. And so Miriam, if you'll just stand. She's the reason I came. She's not gonna like this, but um, thank you, Miriam, for loving me when I got my words. And uh, she's the reason I'm here. So if you don't like the fact that I'm here, you can jump her out of the I remember <laughs> I was supposed to go to Africa for my internship and um, it like fell through last minute. And at this point, like, I'm nine months clean and sober. And so I'm just on edge and, like, angry at the world. And so we met, and she's like, well, what about Texas, Tara? There's this place called House of Faith. And I said, Texas, I'm not going there. It's full of rednecks and cowboys, which, after 10 years, I'm not too wrong on that. I'm just saying. And so she told me to pray about it, and I wasn't really praying at the time. I was just like, whatever. And so I drove 24 hours down here the whole time telling God how wrong he was and, well... 
we see how that worked out. So, let's pray. Um, God, it's fun to remember. It's fun to, to remember the countless ways you rescued me. And God, you sent people, people like Mrs. Window to see the best in me when all I could see was the worst. God, thank you for the countless prayers she prayed on my behalf, for the way she spoke life into me, and she saw me beyond a student. She saw me as a child of God. And God, thank you for your word that always rescues and redeems. And God, I'm asking that you would speak this morning, that we would hear your voice. God, that you would engrave your word on our hearts, God. Help us to hear what you're saying. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're talking this morning about obedience over sacrifice. And our text is 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them and tell them 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. 
And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Never, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should not have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king of Israel. Samuel the prophet tells King Saul that God has spoken, and God has instructions. And God is upset with the Amalekites because they performed all this evil against the Israelites. And so God tells Samuel, you need to tell King Saul to go destroy all of the Amalekites. Everything. But he spares the best of the goods. The king and the sheep and the oxen and the calves and the lambs. God goes and visits Samuel and Samuel's upset because, listen, when you are a prophet or an intercessor for God and you see others in sin and under the wrath of God... You will cry out all night for mercy. I think that's incredible that Samuel did that. Samuel cried all night and he said, God, please. And so the next morning, Samuel goes and he meets Saul. And Saul says, mission accomplished, boss. Samuel says, really? Sounds like old McDonald's farm up in here. Saul, really? What's all the animal noises? See, Saul not only doesn't listen to the voice of God, but then he lies about it. He doesn't take ownership of it. 
Then King Saul says, well, it was for God. It was for God so we could sacrifice. Seems noble, right? Till we dig a little deeper. We're going to pick up in verse 19 where basically Samuel asks Saul why. Saul says, didn't God create you? Didn't God set you apart? Didn't God choose you? Why, Saul? So then King Saul, being a brilliant guy that he is, blames the people and the train wreck continues. Children of God always take ownership of what's theirs. Cowards point blame on the ones around them. Children of God will always take ownership of what's theirs, especially their sin and their failures and their shortcomings. Cowards always blame the ones around them. We've all been a coward. We've all acted like a coward, but the truth is we're children of God, so we just take ownership. I did wrong in college because I chose to do wrong, point blank. It's no one's fault. I chose to do that. But we're in the midst of that. What do we do? Ah, get out. You don't know my story. Leave me alone. You know, like we start pointing blame. And King Saul does that. So he not only doesn't listen to the voice of God, he not only lies about it, but now when he's being questioned about his identity and who he really is, he's being a coward. And he's blaming the people. Oh, the people. Come on. You know the people. I mean, this isn't the first encounter, right? Remember Aaron with the golden calf? And Moses is like, hey, what happened? He's like, oh, these people. (laughs) You know how these people are. You know? Why do we do that? Anyway, Saul gets rebuked. Then Saul wakes up and Saul takes ownership. And Saul admits the root of the problem. I feared the people and listened to them. You and I will spend the rest of our lives either living in fear of man or fear of God, and you cannot do both. Every decision you make will either be based out of fear of man, what's someone going to think of me, am I going to disappoint me, or am I going to disappoint them, people pleasing, whatever. You and I will either live in fear of man or fear of God, but you cannot do both. To fear God is to honor and to respect him as, as true authority. That his word has the final yes and amen. It has the first word and it has the last word, regardless of what it might cost us. When you live in fear, who you live in fear of will determine whether your life is full of victory and freedom or in failure and shackles. Saul begs for Samuel to go with him so he can make it right. Sam says no. Saul rips the robe. I would have been ticked at that point. And Samuel says, look, dude, God has ripped the kingdom. From your hand. Like the rebuke just continues. And so um, Samuel, um, Saul then repents, and then Samuel asks for King Agag. And I kind of think this part is funny. I also think it's kind of sad and it's kind of graphic for a Sunday morning. But it says that Samuel, like, he, he kills King Agag, like, to pieces. And, and here's, here's the reason God wants what he wants. Obedience is supreme. God what wants what he wants. Should practice that one in the shower. God wants what he wants and he won't relent until it's his. He will not stop until it's his. How long it takes to accomplish what God is trying to do is often dependent on our pace of obedience. The Israelite journey, how long should it have taken them to get to the promised land? Like a couple weeks, right? I think. Not long. Right. But 40 years? I mean, we could have stopped at a 7-Eleven by now and figured something out, you know? (laughs) 
We're going to turn and look at some definitions here. Um, Sacrifice. An act of offering to a deity something precious. Destruction or surrender of something for the sake of something else. Something given up or lost. To obey. To follow the commands of guidance of. To conform or to comply with. So here's the loaded question. Why does God desire obedience over sacrifice? I mean, after all, he says that we are to give him 10%, right? And the Old Testament is full of sacrifices and the blood of the goats on the east side of the altar and all this crazy stuff. So why does God desire obedience over sacrifice? Doesn't sacrifice matter? Doesn't it matter that we bring the best of the best, that we bring the first 10% and not the last 10%? Because there's never a last 10%. I'm just saying. Didn't it matter? I mean, it did matter. In the Old Testament, when they said, bring a, bring a, a ram without blemish. Like, they had to get the best of the best, man. They had to go out there and be like, all right, fatties, come here. It's time for you to go today. Like, it had to be the absolute best. So in this text and in this story, why does God say obedience is better than sacrifice? Sacrifice is birthed. From budget. Sacrifice is birthed from budget. Here's the definition of budget. Stock, supply, a quantity involved in, available for, or assignable to a particular situation. For example, if my friend were to come to me and say, Tara, I'm going to offer to you a friendship package monthly. For $10 a month, I will give you one selfie a week. For $25 a month, one lunch a week. For $50 a month, it's the all-inclusive VIP package. And includes all of the above, plus nightly texted prayers and morning inspirational texts. Sounds like a jackpot, right? Don't worry, I'm going to start this next month. I'm just playing. So I could look at my monthly budget and say, hmm, what could I afford? First problem, first tier, no problem. Second one, no, okay. But the third level with VIP access, $50 a month, that would be a sacrifice. Because I'm measuring that $50 out of something that's, that's measured, that's contained. In this instance, money. It all comes down to where obedience is birthed from. Sacrifice is birthed from budget. Obedience, out of John 14, 15. That's where obedience stems from. Jesus looks at the disciples. It's one of the most gut-punching verses of Scripture. And it says this. If you love me, you'll do what I've asked you to do. Period. So all that time I've been saying I love Jesus and singing the song and raising my hand and doing the Sunday thing and the Wednesday thing. But I'm not actively obeying his word. Thanks. Sacrifice is birthed from a budget. Obedience is birthed from love. A budget is measured X amount of dollars, six goat, fat of rams, etc. Love cannot be measured. If I were to say, oh, I have 44 ounces of love for Jesus today. Man, I woke up feeling fantastic. Oh, Bob? (laughs) Come on, it's Bob. You know, Bob. Bob's got like 72 ounces of love for Jesus all the time, right? You can't measure love. But but that's the thing. That's where obedience comes from is love. And so when I choose to disobey... I don't love Jesus. 
Which means when I'm faced with a particular temptation, which lately has been fierce, maybe I'm the only one, I literally have to stop and ask myself, Terry, do you love Jesus? It is sometimes I have to remind myself, Terry, do you love Jesus? Remember, you love Jesus. Because when I choose to do the wrong thing, I am saying, I don't love Jesus. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how loud I sing on Sunday or how many Jesus shirts I wear. When I walk in disobedience, I don't love Jesus. That is his words. And that's kind of intense. Here's the point. Jesus doesn't want a measure of me. He wants all of me. He doesn't want 10% of Tara. He doesn't want Sunday morning Tara. He wants Monday night Tara and Wednesday morning Tara and Friday afternoon Tara. He wants all of me. And that's why he desires obedience above sacrifice because sacrifice is measured. Obedience can't be measured. Either you obey or you don't. Point blank. And it's birthed out of love for Jesus. It's not a religious set of rules. Or legalistic laws of, oh, I've got to do this or I'm going to get zapped with lightning. No, it's because I love Jesus. I want to do the right thing. Because when we love each other, we want to keep them happy, right? I mean, you know, you raise your children to listen and, and all this. But where do we get off as adults thinking that we just have a choice and it doesn't matter? It, it does matter. Because every time you and I choose not to listen and we choose to disobey, we are declaring with our lives, I don't love Jesus. Fully surrendered, fully trusting, quick to obey. When Jesus has all of me, that is when he can do his best work. I often wonder how many hidden treasures of God's heart we miss out on simply because we don't listen. God doesn't need our obedience. He desires it. God doesn't need you to obey. He stands alone as God just fine. He's having a fantastic flipping Sunday, let me tell you. He is not operating on a budget. He is not overwhelmed by the news. He's not concerned about how many people you've got following you on social media. Moms, he could care less how many dirty dishes are in the sink and how long they've been there, honestly. Men, he doesn't care about your... Your weights in the gym or whatever y'all do, I don't even know. <laughs> he, he just doesn't, he doesn't need us. <laughs> he doesn't need us. He stands alone as God just fine. He has for all of eternity. He will for all of eternity. Amen. But in his sovereignty and wisdom and mercy and kindness and the wonder of it all is he chooses us. He doesn't need us. It's not like if we don't obey, the world is going to crumble and the sky is going to fall. And oh, no. But our obedience matters. God desires our obedience because when he asks us to do something or not do something, it's always for two reasons. One is it is for our good and the good of others. Always. Always. And number two, it shows off who he is. It reveals the character of God. God wants you to obey because he loves showing you who he is. But we often want the picture without the process. But our obedience is his gift to us. It's his gift to us. It's not a burden. It's not a set of rules. It's not God putting us in a box. 
He's saying, I want you to trust me because I'm going to show you who I am. Because I am faithful. God is not asking us to go out of our way to prove ourselves. Don't we do that a lot today? Always proving ourselves. But he will always go out of his way to prove himself. To the desperate woman thirsty at the well, God proves that he quenches our deepest thirst and longing always. To the friends and family of Lazarus, God proves that he is always right on time, even if it doesn't line up with our calendar. To the thousands he fed on the hillside with one sack lunch. One. When was the last time you used a sack lunch to feed ten people? Jesus proves again and again that he is always more than enough for the hungry crowd. And the list goes on. But you and I miss it all the time. We waste our lives being the hero and the victim in our own little storyline. Oh, I've done this and that and this and that for Jesus all of my life. Hero. (laughs) Oh, I've given up this and that, been mistreated because I love Jesus. Victim. The reality is this, only Jesus has the right to be the hero and the, the hero and the victim in the same storyline. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And when you and I choose to live our own lives and do our own things and play by our own set of rules rather than God's standard, this creates problems. Started in the Garden of Eden. One rule, don't mess with that tree. What they do? Mess with the tree. <laughs> They got robbed of an entire garden of pure perfection and beauty because of one truth. And you and I get robbed all the time. We get pumped all the time from whatever God is trying to give us because of the one thing right in front of us. Only Jesus has the right to be the hero and victim in the same storyline. Coming in and saving the day when he should have just given up. Coming in and taking my cross. That was mine. That should have been my blood spilled out. But he took it. That's a true victim and hero. Why does God desire obedience over sacrifice? Because Jesus wants all of me, not just a measure of me. Jesus doesn't need my obedience. He desires my obedience. I'm going to close with a story. And uh, it's a story I've shared before here. um, and, And so you might be familiar with it, but... Um, I think it was like, let's see, maybe five years ago, seven years ago, I was in Haiti, and I've been to Haiti numerous times, and I've been on lots of mission trips, and um, I, I love kids, um, and I especially love little boys and, and throwing football, but um, I met this little girl on that trip, and her name is Roberta, and man, I have never had an encounter with a child like I did with this uh, young lady right here, and she spoke Creole, I spoke English, there was a huge... Um, language barrier and I was just there for three days with her and uh, it, it was like the silence spoke so much between us Kevin was with me on that trip and um, I you know she got my big hand and, and we would just walk and I'm kind of uncomfortable because I don't really do the touch thing and I'm like oh man here we go you know and by the end of the third day like she was calling me mom and uh, I remember thinking, like, God, am I supposed to stay here? Like, that might be really bad for House of Faith. I don't know if that's, like, honorable, but, like, it was, there was something so deep in my heart that I still don't have words for. And we said goodbye, and I literally bawled the whole way to the airport on a plane. I'm like, you know, and, and Roddy got a letter about this little girl who I have no idea why she, like, just 
captured my heart the way that she did. And so um, I came back and um, moved on with life here. And about three years later, I got a message from the missionary there. And it said, he, he said, Dear Tara, I'm so sorry. You'll never see Roberta again. Someone came and kidnapped her from the orphanage. And uh, man, my heart just broke. And I remember being at my friend's house and I'm sitting outside. I'm just bawling and I can't even talk. And I just prayed because I didn't know what to do. And I said, God, what are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do? And he said, go find her. And I'm like, oh, uh, I didn't hear that right. God, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, because in Haiti, there's thousands of children that are missing. Like, 80% of the, of the nation lives on less than $2 per day. And there's kids on the streets stealing bread, not because they're trying to be punks, but because they're legitimately hungry. And uh, they, they'll make cookies out of mud and water just to put something in their stomach. It's not like the Amber Alert here, you know? It's like a totally different culture. And so I kept praying, and, and God was like, Tara, go find her. And of course, I'm giving all the reasons why I can't. It's about to be House of Faith Christmas party time. That's a no-go. And I'm, I'm pretty swamped right now, sir. I, I got a lot going on, and I don't know the language, and I don't really have the money. And he kept saying, go. And so actually, we did not went. And uh, the plan was to be, um, we, went, we went and spent Christmas and New Year's there. And the plan was to be at the orphanage for three days, and then we were going to take a bus up to the northern coast of Haiti, where she supposedly was. And we were just going to prayer walk the city streets, which I don't even like walking, so thanks God for saving me on that one. But, uh, and like hold a picture and be like, do you know her? <laughs> you know, like a brilliant thing. That's all I was working on. And uh, so we're at the orphanage three days, and uh, I completely deplete the snack stash in two days. So we're out of food, and it's just hard. And uh, I remember Ashley got M&Ms from her family for Christmas, and so <laughs> this has zero points in the story, but I think it's funny, so I'm going to say it. So she got this bag of crispy M&Ms from her family for Christmas, and I'm laying in my bed one night sticking to the plastic mattress. I said, hey, and we're out of our food stash, like it's just gone. I said, Ashley, I said, what you do with those M&M's? <laughs> and she goes, oh. She goes, I'm going to save them to want to get back. I said, save them? I will buy you a pallet of M&M's. Get them out now. <laughs> so she was incredibly gracious and kind, and I never bought any more M&M's, but whatever. And so we're at this orphanage, and then the pastor asks me, he says, now, Tara, why are you going to Capetian? And I burst into tears, and I said, I'm supposed to go find Roberta. And he said, Tara, it's not safe. Let me make a phone call. And I was like, oh, great. Here we go. So here comes all the thoughts. What about all the people who gave me money? Well, what if this is wrong? What if I didn't hear right, you know? And uh, not to mention, we weren't planning on being at the orphanage, so we didn't bring any toys or activities. And so literally every day, we're, we're surrounded by like 50 orphans who are hungry, amongst other things. And they just swarm you. And um, there's a little boy there, and uh, they called him Nono. And uh, he was the cutest little boy. But man, he had these sores all over his head. And they were oozing. And truth be known, I didn't want to hold him because I didn't want his oozing sores to get on my shirt. And I remember God saying, Walter, you think you figured this out? You think you know how to love people? You don't. Hold that little boy. 
And that was an incredibly long week. And God broke my heart in ways that it needed to be broken. And uh, the, the missionary would get a phone call every day. He'd say, oh, Tara, I have an update. And really, the update was no update. There's three days left in the trip. Three days. And he says, get in the Jeep, we're going. So we drive all night on this mountain. We're in the back of this old metal Jeep. And there's two benches facing each other. There's like a 100-year-old man there. And he fell asleep, so he missed his, his drop-off. So now he's just with us. And, you know, we're stopping and peeing in the middle of the street. And it's awesome. I'm like, man, this is like the missionary biographies I read as a kid. Like, this is epic, you know? And we get there at 5.30 in the morning. And whosoever house we were supposed to sleep at didn't answer. So the pastor's like, okay, we sleep here. We go when the sun rises. I was like, sleep here? <laughs> sleep in the Jeep? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so I laid down and went to sleep for an hour. And then we got up and went to this village. And uh, we walked through a ton of mud. And we went to this house. And it was a one-room cinder block house that had a sheet hanging down the middle to make it like a two-room house. And all of the people in the village gathered around, and they were cramming in the doorway and just staring. And my heart was racing. And I'll never forget when Roberta walked in that door. And we gave each other a hug, and I handed her a letter I'd written her six months ago. And we sat down, and we talked with her uncle. Um, here's, here's the backstory: Roberta was arrested. She was an uh, only child. Her parents died when she was very young, so she was a child slave, which is a big problem in Haiti. So at the age of 11, her uncle didn't want her anymore. He dropped her off at the orphanage. So the person who stole her was a grandmother, who's not really a grandmother, who stole her to go work the streets. And as a rest of it, you're not allowed to have friends. You're not allowed to go to school. You're not allowed to go to church. At the age of 11, when I met her, she had zero education, never had a pair of shoes, didn't even know when her birthday was. So we meet with her uncle, and we say, look, she needs to go home where she can get an education and where she can go to church and she can be left. And we handed him a stack of cash, like $1,000. And we basically bought her back. And, and we drive back to the orphanage that night. And I'll never forget the way all of the children, the same children who the same week before kept telling me, Tara, Roberta's not here. Roberta's not here. I'm like, I oh, know. The same children swarmed the gate as our little Jeep pulled in. And they were jumping up and down, chanting, Roberta, Roberta, Roberta. It's one of the most incredible moments of my life. And the next day, I wanted to meet with Roberta because I had a chance later, and I kind of wanted to interview her and tell her how much God loved her that he would orchestrate this. I mean, the odds of this happening are like, I don't know. I don't even know. And I just wanted her to know how much God loved her and that he cared about her. And so um, when I was meeting with her, I'll never forget what she told me. That for one week, three times a day, she prayed that God would send me to find her. Now, here's why your obedience matters. God doesn't need you to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. It's for us. I needed rescuing more than Roberta did. I just did. And it mattered. And the lessons that I learned in that trip, where I learned how to not go find a missing child, but far more important than that, 
I learned to trust the spirits we need. And to just listen, even when it doesn't make sense. And nothing about that church went according to plan. Nothing. But everything went according to his purpose, and it was perfect. It was perfect. Because we were stuck and stranded at the orphanage, we had a stack of cash that we had budgeted for tap-tap rides. And we used that to buy Roberta's freedom. And you know what? Roberta's home. And she's happy and she's safe and she's healthy and she's in school and she speaks English. God doesn't need our obedience. He desires our obedience because he so badly wants to show us who he is. That he is the God of more than enough. He is the God who keeps his word. He is the God who is faithful. He is the God who doesn't waste anything in our lives. Even pain and hardship and trial and unanswered prayers. He is God. He always has been. He will never stop being God. And you and I get punked all the time because we settle for less. And God is saying, I want all of you. I don't want to measure. I want all of you because I want to show you things in my heart that nobody else knows. But we will miss it if we choose to disobey and not love Jesus. 